truth in that lyric, isn't there? I need thee every hour. Yeah. Am I the only one that needs them every hour? Is it just me? I know I need them every hour. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, for the reading of God's word. Just before I read you God's word, I want to offer... A brief reading from a book by Mark Dever titled The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church that I think helps shape the topic found within our text today. So while you're finding your place in 2 Corinthians 10, I'll read you this. Neo-paganism, secularism, pragmatism, all these $10 words, rightly understood, probably did pose serious problems in the churches in the last century. But I am convinced that the, the problem most fundamental lies in the way Christians conceive of their own churches. Too many churches misunderstand the priority that they are to give to God's revealed word and to the nature of the regeneration God offers therein. Reevaluating these must be a part of any solution to the problems of today's churches. So over and above and beyond neo-paganism and secularism and pragmatism, if you like academic thoughts, or you might say Hollywood culture, duplicitous politicians, if you want to take those $10 words and break them down, people that just do what they think they have to do to get what they want, do what works and not necessarily what's right. He says that he's convinced the problem most fundamentally the church is facing is the way they conceive of their own churches and misunderstanding the priority they are to give to God's revelation, His Word, and the regeneration He offers therein. He goes on to list models of churches that fall short of evaluating in this light. He mentions models of churches from all stripes. I'll spare you some of his prose, but I'll just simply say I think his problem gets at it. Too many churches misunderstand the priority that they are to give, and therefore too many church members misunderstand the priority that they are to give to God's revelation and to the nature of the regeneration He offers therein, the regeneration work that happens inside of an individual. And you can, you can miss that in an attempt to be missional without being biblically faithful. You can miss that in an attempt to be narrowly biblically faithful to your local church without actually seeing that go out to mission. You can, you can miss that by atomizing the Bible in such a way and allegorizing the Bible in such a way that you, you liberalize it to where it's devoid of any true meaning and historical context. There are ways in which we can conceive of the church that are dangerous. And so what I want to talk to you about today in the short time that we have together is having the right measures for ministry and for missions. And we're going to see that in our text by, by, by God's grace. And my point of view is that we need to develop biblical measurements rather than personal preferences for what faithful ministry and mission looks like. And if we do develop, if we do develop faithful biblical measurements rather than personal preferences for faithful ministry and mission, I think that that will guide us into greater contentment in the body of Christ because we'll sense the fruitfulness that God's giving to us. So I hope that as a result of today's message, that you will very simply pray for one member family in the church and pray for one missionary fervently. 
Just pray. I hope that one application, maybe among many, is that you will pray for a member family and pray for a missionary and do so fervently. Let's look at God's word today with that backdrop and let's consider how it might apply to our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 18 is our text for today. Look at what's before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we, bo- we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends, and by default, who is approved. The one whom the Lord commends. That's what we want, is the commendation of the Lord, right? We want the Lord to commend us. We don't want self-commendation. So let's take a look at this on its parts this morning and set it in its context. First, look at verses 7 through 12, and and let's see what a right measurement for ministry is to be. And then we'll look at verses 13 to 18, and let's see what a right measurement for ministry will be. So measurement for mission, rather. Measurement for ministry, first verses 7 through 12, and then measurement for mission, the second set of verses 13 through 18. So first, let's look at the right measures for ministry, verses 7 through 12. Paul is facing accusation. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. It was the fourth letter that he has written. Two of them are still extant, and they're in our canon of Scripture, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This, we think, the fourth of four letters, two of which we have. And he has written this letter on the heels of having written another letter called a tearful letter to the church where he laid out the real need for them to repent. And by virtue of his meeting with Titus in Macedonia, we think that the majority of the church at Corinth, the Corinthianizing church, the church that's known for their hedonism and problems in the Greco-Roman world, we think most of these believers repented. 
And so there's all kinds of confident statements throughout the letter to this point. And yet there's always this undertone within the letter here in 2 Corinthians where Paul is writing now, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings with the tearful letter. I didn't want to hurt your feelings, but I had to hurt your feelings because you had to repent of the way that you lived. And most of you did. But some of you that think you're super apostles and think you know better than the apostles that Jesus sanctioned to do this mission, some of you still need to repent. And I'm going to bring the hammer down in chapters 10 and 11 and following. So that's kind of where we're at in the letter. That's the feeling of the letters. We're coming to the point now where he's got through a lot of of confident sayings about the believers. And he'll make a few more. But where he is now is he's, he's making kind of a last plea for some of the um, thing, people that know, but think that they know better than he does about what an apostle is supposed to do and be and what their sphere of influence is supposed to be. He's calling them to repent by virtue of his rejection and repudiation of their way of thinking, of their logic, of their ideas. And so that's what's going on in this text. And if you miss that, you won't really be able to, this text won't make a lot of sense. You'll read it for everything that it's not. This is about Paul saying to the church at Corinth, most of you have repented, some of you still need to, and a couple of you in there are probably bad eggs because of the way that you've conducted yourself so far and you seem like... was one. So to go rejecting the apostle Paul is part and parcel for going to reject Jesus with regard to the authoritative letters sent to the churches for how we're supposed to operate. There are things that we can know. Now, with regard to right measures for ministry, I was thinking about this this week, and there's a lot of chaos with regard to defining these measures, and it's probably because everybody has an opinion. Chaos is defined in the book of Judges as when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. It champions the autonomy of the self. There's no collective knowledge, so how could we have a knowledge of God? There's little community development when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. There's no common vernaculars. There's no common speech phrases where we have building blocks for the civilization within the church. And when we have such a chaos, there is a need for a common understanding because we're without understanding. And we need to understand that coming to a common understanding is of God's grace. It's not something we can do for ourselves. Look down at chapter 10, verse 11. It says, let such a person understand, or logic, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Let such a person understand. It says in this text, let such a person remind themselves. He's making a last plea for those that are creating division in the church to come to faith in the way not only of Christ, but the way Christ wants his church to be conducted. 
They're accusing Paul of things that are very disruptive to the church because they're, they're essentially undermining that Paul understands how a church is supposed to function. They're trying to make a separation between their understanding of Paul as a Christian and his understanding of how to run a church. And God, in fact, tasked Paul at his conversion with taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter and Paul talk about it, and it's recorded in Galatians chapter 2. And so the apostle Paul is supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's supposed to take them to the non-Jewish people. He's supposed to take it westward, and his desire is to keep taking it. And along the way, folks like this, obviously implanted at least with devilish thinking, are trying to undermine how he's clearly taught to do church. And so with that, and thinking about wrong measures for ministry, let's listen to verses 7 through 12 afresh and think about right measures for ministry. So he says, he says, look at what's right before your eyes. Look at it. It's right in front of you. He says, if anyone is confident, verse 7, he's Christ, let that person remind himself or understand himself or, or legitimize himself. It's the same word that's used twice to four in this chapter we talked about last week about tone and tenor. Let him understand, remind himself that just the same as he's Christ, I'm a Christian too. The apostles are Christians too. We're believers too. We're walking with the Lord too. He's commissioned us to do this. And he says in verse 8, even if I boast a little too much, I think he's speaking hyperbolically here, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave, gave to them, the apostles, for building up the church and not for destroying it, I'm not going to be ashamed. That verse is really important to understanding this moment in this, in this book in 2 Corinthians. He's being accused of boasting too much. And he says, even if I talk about my authority, I want you to understand that authority is not your enemy. Authority is not your enemy. Chaos is when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Authority is granted by God for a common understanding so that we can experience blessings in our lives. Now, there is such thing as bad authority. True. There's heavy-handed authority. There's manipulative authority. There's, there's authority that we could offer all kinds of disclaimers for where authority can go wrong. But if the 20th century was a repudiation of all kinds of bad authority in the church. We need the 21st century to be a recovery of good authority within the church. We have wiped the slate of authority to the point that we're each our own authority in interpreting the Scripture all by ourselves with no counsel from anyone else. And what it winds up being is there's no collective study to come to collective understanding so that it isn't chaotic. Because what's chaotic? It's when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. What's going on here, I think, when we read texts like this today, is Paul is saying authority is not your enemy. The Lord grants authority to his people, and he even grants authority within the church. During the age of the apostles and now during the age of the church, there is authority, and authority is there for your good and not for your bad. You know, to use it in the sense of how we're operating today, because there's no apostles with a big A alive today. You had to witness the resurrection for that to be the case, and none of us did. And so we're not apostles. But we are, in our church, all sharing a kind of congregational authority to make decisions for ministry. So in a sense, we do each have some authority, but we defer some of that authority in our congregational way of doing things and our congregational order or polity. We defer some of it to leaders in the church, don't we? Namely, elders. That's how we operate. Those elders don't have an authority of command. You know, it's not like Ron says to somebody, hey, 
uh, you need to go jump and I'll tell you how high. That's not how it is. But he does kind of carry as an elder and the other elders carry a kind of influence where if they say, you really need to think about this, we sort of voluntarily submit and say back, okay, well, what do I need to think about? You know, the church has called you out as a leader. We've recognized that the Lord has set you aside to do this task, uh, and there, we recognize there's a certain amount of authority that comes with that. There is a kind of attitude that's been prevalent within the church, whether it was the age of the apostles, which we're not in. There's no apostles among us right now. Or whether it's now where we have elders or we have a congregational polity and we defer some authority to elders. There's always been an attitude of disdain for authority. It's always been there. It's right here. It's relevant right here in this text too. It says, you know, it says here, the apostle Paul says that he's gone on with a little too much of his authority, boasting about his authority a little too much they accuse him of, but the Lord gave it to me. And he says, he gave it to me for building you up and not for destroying you. There's always been this sense that even the smell of authority is my enemy because it has to be about destroying me. And I don't know in the history of the world if there's been a more anti-authoritarian streak than there was in the 20th century. I mean, you just read history, even church history. I mean, the kind of anti-moral authority, well, it's created the time of the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. It's chaos. And I get the impulse. I mean, we can chronicle story after story after story after story of where people in areas of influence, if not command, at least areas of influence, have misused their authority in lives of people. That is totally to be just, that's terrible. They use their authority for destruction and not for building up. But what about those that God has given authority to that are not using it for destructive purposes, but are using it by biblical definition for building you up? Ought we to carry the same negative connotation, the same disdain for those in authority simply because we've thrown the baby out with the authority bathwater? Answer, no. And what happens when we do that is we become a functional authority unto ourselves. And what happens when that happens? Well, we rob ourselves of the very means of grace that God intended for our own upbuilding. And how do we do it? Well, we do it with the most benevolent of thinking, right? I've seen authority done bad, and so I don't want any part of it. And so we sort of have a smug, cavalier attitude toward it. There are two things that we can do in the church. We can aspire toward that kind of influence and labor toward it. We can also submit to it. But to deny the authority that God has granted to the church for its own upbuilding is to deny sustenance to the body because God intended it that way. I think that's the underbelly to this conversation. Verse 8, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, that's always benevolent authority. Authority should never be used for, for destroying. And some of you say, well, then how in the world can you do church discipline? Well, apparently you can because these books to the Corinthians, they're all about church discipline. And at the same time, he says, I'm about building you up and not destroying you. So in some sense, correction is about building up. It's not about tearing down. So we can't go down that problem either. You know, the one that despises the Lord's discipline doesn't understand that the Lord actually disciplines those he loves is what it says in the book of Hebrews. That's worth a read. It says here that this authority is used for building you up, not for destroying you. 
And I'm not going to be ashamed of authority. I'm not going to be ashamed of having it, Paul said, as, as an apostolic authority. And an elder shouldn't be ashamed of having that authority as an elder in the church. He says here, though, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. He's written these letters I've spoken about to you already. I don't want to appear to just be scaring you. They're accusing him to be scary with words. Verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. Well, he refuses to use the stoic rhetorical skills of the day. He, he sticks with the plain spoken truth of God's word, and they're accusing him of not being very sharp with words. It's probably not because Paul didn't understand rhetoric. He's one of the sharpest guys that ever walked the earth. It's probably because he refused to use that kind of rhetoric to try to gen up responses. It's more likely that instead what Paul was doing was just trying to be as clear as he could with the gospel truth. And I think that's a good model for us too. Verse 11, let such a person that's doing this kind of accusing toward the right measure for ministry in the church, let such a person that says, that say, that, um, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, what, what is now being carried to you is truth, we do when present. We, we live by the truth. Now, our tone may not be the same. We may write in a way that's very direct, and we may speak in a way when we're interpersonal that's very loving but yet truthful, but we, we don't change the truth. Verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. A brief pause just to say in the Greek, classify and compare are two different Greek words that are compound words that have the the Greek word krino for judge in it. And so krino for judge, classify, compare, they're both rooted in the word for judge. So not that we dare to judge or judge ourselves. It kind of might help you get at it. We don't care to judge ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Now, verse 12 desires some unpacking. We need some unpacking here. What's he saying? Paul doesn't have a problem with commendation. He's got, he does it in this letter. He commends himself for faithfulness to gospel ministry. He, in a silly way, he's going to talk about his resume coming up in these next couple chapters. So he's not, he's not saying you can't have a resume. He's not saying that there can be no commendation of an individual that's, that's not what's going on. So what is he talking about? He is obviously taking issue with the manner in which some of these self-proclaimed apostles are commending themselves. And he's going to get into this next section. He'll get into some of what his, his beef is there and why he thinks it's wrong. But he rejects the way that they judge, not that they judge. He says that we don't dare to judge ourselves the way that some of these are judging themselves. These people commend themselves. They're self-commending rather than being commended by the Lord. And so therefore, as they're comparing themselves with one another, they lack understanding. They lack logic in the manner in which they're supposed to be judged or the way that they would arrive at a faithful, biblical, spiritual commendation. So to wrap up this first section of Scripture, verses 7 through 12, we're talking about right measures for ministry, which we need to have so that we can have joy and fulfillment and faithfulness to the Lord's Word. So we need right measures, and those measures for ministry cannot be as such that we look to use authority to destroy one another rather than to build one another up. Also, they can't be as such that we deny all authority exists in the body of Christ, because that would be a repudiation of the clear teaching of Scripture. 
We have to find the right balance of what it looks like to have authority in our lives and what it looks like to support biblically inspired, God-led authority for our lives. And so we need both and, not either or. That is the big problem with the false teachers in the church, in the early church and in the church today, is they create dichotomies where there is not one. It is not a dichotomy between whether or not there will be authority or there won't be authority. That's a false dichotomy. It's a dichotomy that separates bad use of authority from faithful use of authority. One of which is for tearing down and one of which is for building up. That's the distinction that needs to be made. We should rid ourselves of false dichotomies. One commentator says, darn all false dichotomies to hell. Jesus says, let man not separate what God hath joined together. There can be two things, two aims, two gospel aims that run together, and in our sin we can separate them and say it has to be either or. It's not authority or not. It's right use of authority or wrong use of authority. And we're going to see a very similar dichotomy that they're, that they're trying to create to push Paul to the margins in the second set here. So we've talked about right measures for ministry, and that is the right use of authority for the purpose of building up the church and not for tearing it down. And by the way, let me just simply say before we go on to the second point, that that is still the purpose of the church today. We are to be building up the church. We need to be building it up, not, not just in more numbers. We welcome them when they come, but in terms of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to be building one another up in the word And so that is important for you and for me. When we gather together, the purpose of why we're here is to be built up in the Word, to to be more and more knowledgeable of the truth, to have our logic, our mentality shaped by the Word of God every time we get together and the days in between. It's so very, very important. Now, point two, what are right measures for missions? What's right measures for missions? Now, there will not be time. There's been many books written on the subject, many, 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 many books. I've read many, and there's many, 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 many more than, than, than what I've read, many, many, many. But just from this text, what can we pull out that's faithful to biblical theology that's right measures for how we do missions or for what missions is and whatnot? So, so let's look at that for a moment based on this, this text, verse 13 and following. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Now, just to, just to pump the brakes and pause for a second. What's he talking about here? Well, God assigned the apostles, particularly Paul, but all the apostles, I'm sure, to share the word and to start churches. We see that with Peter. We see it with Paul. We see it with John. We see his letter from the Isle of Patmos. We see his letter of, of Revelation, which talks about the seven churches in Asia Minor. So we see this. But what specifically was Paul's calling but to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to go west? He went went west. He took the gospel west as a single man. Jesus met him on that Damascus road and tasked him with taking the gospel west. And so what he says here, though, is even for him, there is some kind of limit to his area of influence. He admits that. But look at verse 13. We will not, verse 13 again, we won't boast beyond limits. We will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned us to reach even you. So he understands the region of Achaia. He understands the Macedonians. He understands the church at Corinth to be in his area of influence. Verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Well, that's big, isn't it? What a great verse. 
Don't need a lot of comment there. Just, just simply to just praise God that he's in the business of sending people to reach you. Aren't you glad you're reached? And I'm really glad I'm reached with the gospel. Like, just the gravity of that for a moment. Let it, let it sink in. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. And you remember who first came all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. What if it hadn't been all that urgent to them? What if it wasn't all that important to them? What if this whole what if this whole thing wasn't really all that essential to them? What if it was not a matter of urgency? Are you thankful for the person that the Lord inspired to come to you first with the gospel of Christ? It's hard to have a life with Christ without first having a person share Christ with you, right? And I do suppose you can get it from simply reading the scriptures on your own, and that's true. But I bet if we were just to go to a man and a woman in this room and you were to talk about how the gospel came to you, I bet there was a person involved in helping you understand the scriptures. True enough? We probably just didn't read it flatly on our own, save a few. And it's a wonderful time right now for us to be thankful for those that first brought the gospel to us. Now, particularly about this context, Paul is not going to let them continue to accuse him of overextending himself because, himself because it was his overextension of his schedule that brought him first to them by sea to get to them and to bring them the gospel. And he's compelling, he's trying to compel them to understand that the inconvenience of missions is an inconvenience worth engaging I asked you a moment ago to consider gratitude for whoever brought you the gospel first. And I even kind of hoped your conscience would be pricked with, what if they didn't bring it to you? And now I want you to fast forward and think about the future. And I want you to imagine a human being being able to say that about you. I mean, Beverly was first to bring me the gospel. You know, I, re- I remember when I remember when Kurt was first to bring me the gospel. I remember when you fill in your name, right, Derek, Sierra. Go just go around the room. First to bring first to bring me the gospel. I can remember when that person brought me the gospel. And now let's do the same sort of litmus test as we did for ourselves. What if that person can't say that? What if that person can't say? that someone was first to bring me the gospel. See, and what are you going to do about it? Because you've all been sent. To close the service today, we'll read the Great Commission. It's a summary statement of, of all of our having been sent. Jesus not only tasked the first apostles with going, but us within our going, sharing the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. Will they be able to say Won't you want them to? Imagine being in heaven, right? And meeting up with someone in heaven, 
and being like, hey, I, I remember when you shared the gospel with me. You were the first to bring the gospel to me. Now, a lot of other people taught me some stuff. Some real knowledgeable people taught me stuff. I had Bible teachers, but, but you know, you brought the gospel to me. That's big, isn't it? Don't be embarrassed in, in 20 years, if you have it, by, by having been indifferent about missions right now. Don't be embarrassed by that. Instead, purpose in your own mind to be a part of faithful missions. Purpose in your own mind to do it. Begin by praying with us about it, and particularly about one. You know, we support a couple of missionaries in this church. I can think of the Bournes and the Wilsons. You can pray for them. One of them's in the Middle East. Uh, the other one's actually in the Middle East. Not sure which country right now. Probably shouldn't say since we record this. But pray for them and ask us about them. And furthermore, do some of your own investigation and consider how in your own family worship you can lead your family at home to pray for missions, missionary. But notice what I said from the very beginning of the sermon. I said that I thought, from my point of view, that a good action item for you to apply this sermon would be to pray not only for a missionary, but also, do you you remember what I said? For one member family, this is a church directory in my hand, for one member family, very personally, like very specifically. And why would I say something like that? That Those seems like pretty low-hanging fruit, don't they? Like, you could probably check that off your list by this afternoon, to pray for one missionary and pray for one member family. Why would, I, why would I challenge you to do that? What's the purpose of that? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Because we're, we are going to darn all false dichotomies to hell. What God hath joined together, let man not separate. Our tendency and our lack of understanding and our bad legitimacy to use the parlance of this text, our tendency is to be all about missions or all about ministry. We want to be engaging in the ministry of the local church for building up the body and just not too concerned with missions. Or the body's not moving fast enough to suit me, so forget all that authority business. I'm going to go do missions with my life. And then there's, there's no ministry in the local church. And here's what happens is we create a false dichotomy where Jesus and the apostles did not. They just didn't. Matter of fact, He's being accused of creating this dichotomy, and the, the very structure of this text says that he doesn't buy into it because he talks about how he's using his authority painstakingly to build up the church at Corinth. As stubborn as they've been, he just keeps telling him what they told him, keeps, telling him, keeps reminding them of what he told them. He keeps telling him he's even willing to refute these accusers that's like these kids with these weird arguments about my authority. He's even willing to do it again just to try to get as many of the believers, as many of the members at Corinth in the right direction with the right understanding for the right measure for the ministry of the local church, not for the destroying of it, but for the building of it up. And at the very same time in this text, he turns right around and he hits right back at him with, and I'm about missions too. And here's how he does it. Look at verse 15 and on down. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. So this is the problem that you guys with your self-commendation, those bad guys, they're just limiting about stuff we've done and stuff other apostles have done and stuff other leaders has done. He says, but, verse 15, our hope is that as your faith increases, look at the causal correlation here, ministry, building up the local church, as your faith increases, this is our hope, as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. You say, well, what does that mean? It means missions. And here's how we know, verse 16. So that 
we may preach the gospel, the one that first came to you, so that we may preach it in lands beyond you. He's probably thinking of Rome and Spain. We could think about anywhere, any unreached people group. And that it may go, that, that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, so clearly not just in Corinth, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. In other words, I'm good for other people that have the gospel to take the gospel. We're not territorial here. We'll refute false gospels. We'll advocate for biblically faithful polity in the churches, but we, we won't undermine another gospel ministry, another area of influence. It's not what Paul's about. He says it's not what we're supposed to be about. Verse 17, let the one who boasts, here's the imperative, boast in the Lord, boast in the work of the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself, we already talked about this, who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So back up to verses 15 and 16, because that's where we want to park it for the, the winding down of the sermon. Remember, we're talking about right measures for mission. We do not boast, verse 15, beyond limit in the labor of others. Our hope, what we hope for, pivotal sentence here. If there's one sentence you sort of bake on from the sermon, I hope this will be one that you consider because it's such a tying verse for this, this section, this, this admittedly difficult text section of Scripture to understand. Our hope is that as your faith increases, almost like a causal correlation, as your faith increases, my hope is that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. There's a correlation, I believe, between the growth in the faith of the saints and their desire to be supportive of, if not actively engaged in, lands beyond themselves. Do you see that? You see that there? There seems to be a correlation between, you know, and it's, it's built into his hope, but, but my hope is that as you grow, that our area of influence may be enlarged so that we can preach the gospel. So in other words, we may have confidence, you may have confidence in your leaders that together we have this vision. As we're growing, we may preach the gospel in other lands without quibbling about what other people are doing. Just go do it and be faithful to it. And, and, and this is where sin trips us up, is we make dichotomies in places that we ought not. I talked about it with regard to authority earlier in the sermon because authority is good if it's used goodly. Authority is used badly is bad, but it doesn't mean authority is bad as a construct. That's a 20th century as a holdover for us. But here is another dichotomy that's central to the sermon today. It's a distinction, a false dichotomy, admittedly, between ministry and missions. As if one necessarily means the undermining of the other. If you spend too much time trying to be a faithful local church, a healthy local church, then you'll never do any missions. Right? Or if we just if we go do missions and we invest ourselves in missions and we ain't gonna have time to make sure we have members' meetings. I mean, you bunch of bean counters, who's got time for that? That's a distinction, that's a dichotomy that, that seems that the Bible doesn't make. I mean, Jesus was not caught unawares when he tasked the church to be the church. When Jesus gives us the Great Commission that's recorded in Matthew 28, he didn't somehow, after, after having already, or he didn't somehow forget that he had already taught on the church in Matthew 18 like it's recorded. He says that he's with us always, even to the end of the age, as we go taking the gospel. But in Matthew 18, words of Jesus, he says that when two or more are gathered of you in the courtroom of church discipline, I'm there with you also. And he instructs us on how to handle 
issues in the body of Christ to the glory of God. It's not two different Jesuses. Same Jesus. Two truths can be leveled in tension. They can both be true. Faithful ministry and faithful missions can both be true. We, in our understandings, because of our selfishness, our pride, because of our lack of formation in the Word of God, we tend to make dichotomies in the wrong places when it comes to spiritual things. And then also, sadly, we make dichotomies, or we don't make dichotomies, we don't make distinctions in the world of sin where we should. We don't make distinctions from light and darkness like we should. That's all part of the fallen human condition, but but glory be to God, he's not done with us yet, is he? Aren't you glad he's still working in our lives to help us understand? Could today be an installment in understanding? Right measures for ministry, for the upbuilding of a church with regard to authority, and, and right measures for mission with regard, a heart to, with regard for a heart to take the gospel to places beyond ourselves that someday someone would look back and say, I remember when Matt first took the gospel to me. I remember when... Jill or Jane or Jim or you fill in your name, put it in there first to the gospel of me. It'll be a wonderful time in heaven because things like that are going to be going on in addition to all kinds of other God-inspired amazing things. But Jesus was not caught unaware when he tasked the church to be faithful in her ministry and the church to be faithful to her mission. And what God hath joined together, let man not separate. You know, Jesus didn't fall for false dichotomies. They try to trip him up with the greatest commandment. You know, well, what's the greatest commandment? And then they wind up walking away. He's like, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what'd he do? He summed them all up. <laughs> They're trying to get him to make a distinction between a command and the commandments. And he found, he, he rightly, he's Jesus, he rightly got around it. This is another example, I think, of those of us that follow Christ, finding ways in our following of Christ to not allow ourselves to be backed into the corners of false distinctions. Ministry and mission are gospel aims, plural, aims, not aim. It's not an aim, it's aims. So pray for your family or with your family, for a family member in the church. If you're not a member of the church yet, consider taking membership matters with Pastor Kurt starting next Sunday. Pray for a member or family of the church. You can pray for more than one, but pray for one for sure fervently and pray for at least one missionary that you might be able to think about this message in a way that's applicatory for your life. The church and her mission are worth the effort to understand collectively, not just individually and chaotically, but collectively by God's word. The church and her mission are worth your effort to understand, to get right, to measure right with right weights and measurements so that we would be known as a people found faithful unto Christ. Now I need to say one more thing before we close. If you've never received the gospel for your own personal salvation, you've never repented of your sin and believed on Christ for salvation, then that is the application for you to this message because you can't be faithful to a ministry and to a mission that you haven't yet received the author of. You have to start with receiving Christ. And I don't want to go past that with you this morning. The Lord is working in your life this morning and you're, you're humbled by all of this. You're intrigued, you're moved, but you haven't yielded your life to Christ. It'd be a great time right now for you to just pause with me and to pray a humble prayer to the Lord. Now, I don't do like sinner's prayer stuff where you repeat after me and all of a sudden you're a Christian because you could repeat a paragraph with me and walk right out there and you could be just, you could be going to hell in a handbasket. You wouldn't know the Lord. What I'm asking you to do this morning is if you're humble to give your life to Jesus. I'm just asking you to say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm a sinner. 
I want you as Lord of my life. And in, in this time of prayer to do something like that and then tell somebody after church because I don't want to make mystical the words. What I want to do is make meaningful your heart because if the Lord doesn't change your heart, this doesn't mean a thing. It won't mean a thing. But if the Lord changes your heart, you get in this game, and it is so amazingly good. And it's so amazingly hard, but it's so amazingly good. It's so amazingly hard. Jesus told us to count the cost. It's hard, but it's hard in a good way because we're moving towards something good, right? We're being sanctified. And so I want to invite you into it today. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, for the, the believers here that are acting in their faith, I pray you'd stir them to action because of your text in the message today. And for those here today that, that, that you have, have worked in their heart already and they're trying to find words to stay out loud, the humility that they have in front of you. I pray you'd help that person to, to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin, to, to acknowledge you as the leader of their life, and to utter a, a reception of the gospel today because it first came to them by this message. They've received the gospel, the good news, that changes every single life that it touches. Lord, thank you for changing my life. And I thank you for the lives that you're changing right now. I pray that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we meditate on our responses to this text today, I invite our ushers to come to collect our offerings.